Hello, and welcome back to Management 101. I am your host, Max Wenneker. Thanks for joining us today. Today, I am joined by a guest, Austin Gunter, who I actually met on a hike. We'll talk more about that in a sec. I guess I should talk about the content of the episode first. Austin's an expert in marketing. And as you're aware, the goal of this podcast is is twofold. One, to teach people to be better people managers, and two, to teach people to be better org managers. Today, we're going to be focused more on the second, and specifically around developing a marketing function at a startup. And so I've asked Austin to join me today to talk through this topic with me. Austin, thank you so much for joining. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Max. I'm looking forward to chatting about this. Good. So you're reading the script I gave you. Uh, that's exactly. That's good. Before we get started, I wanted, I'm going to have Austin introduce himself, but I first want to talk through how we met because I think it's a fun little factoid. There is a venture capital firm based in San Diego called Interlock Capital. And one of the LPs, his name is Neil Bloom. He hosts a hike once a month that happens in La Jolla down here in San Diego. This hike happens at 6.30 a.m. on a Wednesday every month. And yes, it is very early. But I have been four or five times now since moving here and have really enjoyed it. And I get to meet all sorts of interesting people, one of whom is Austin. So Austin and I had a chat at a hike recently and went out to breakfast with a couple other founders afterward and got to talking and realized that we have a lot in common being owners of our own practices and The thing that I think is really interesting about Austin is he does a line of work that I'm completely unfamiliar with. And I figured if I'm in the tech space, I'm in org management and I'm unfamiliar with this area. I figure other people are too. And this would be a great opportunity to enlighten everyone on the topic of building out a marketing function and a marketing strategy. So Austin, I've given you a little bit of introduction. What do you do today? Yeah. My name is Austin Gunter. I run Market Model Consulting and I help founders go from zero to one from a marketing perspective. So usually seed stage or series A founders who are trying to scale their marketing up to about $10 million in revenue. Why don't we start with strategy and planning? That's a good overall topic to kick off with. And got a few questions here and really meant to kick off more of a discussion than anything. Mm-hmm. Let's say I'm a first time founder. And I've got a startup that's maybe getting a little bit of traction. I need to figure out how do I set up a marketing function and or a marketing team? What are the first steps that I should be thinking about when it comes to building out a marketing function and team? A lot of times what will happen here is there's always a tension between do you hire a salesperson or do you hire a marketing person first? Or do you need to hire both of them at once? One of the first things that you want to do is you want to actually have the conversation with yourself about where on that type of continuum are you. If you're a heavily sales-led type of thing that requires a lot of outbound sales, that's usually the right way to do it. Product-led growth will need to be more marketing-driven, and so you'll hire that marketing person first. When you think of product-led growth versus heavily outbound enterprise sales sort of stuff, It's easy to think about it in terms of how much money am I making per customer? The lower that is, the more transactional my sales needs to be, the more likely I'm going to be product-led growth. Let me try to break this down for a moment before we get deeper into it. You are saying that there are two types of growth. There is product-led growth, and then there's another type of growth that you're referring to. Yeah, like like an enterprise sales. And it's less like there's two types 
and more that like there's a continuum. So um, every company is somewhere along that spectrum of correct. I am product led growth or somewhere more towards I am enterprise sales led growth. We're talking enterprise sales. We're talking yep. a few sales to very big companies. When we're talking product led growth, we're talking more sales to smaller organizations or individuals. Calendly is like 10 bucks a month, right? That's product. That's very much a product led growth. It, they're not selling to large enterprise organizations, or if they are, that's a very small piece of their overall sales yep. strategy. Yep. And then Oracle on the other end of that spectrum is massive enterprise deals with a heavy loaded sales cycle. And then you'll find companies that blend that, the discussion bit about product led growth versus something else. That's a whole other podcast episode. But as long sure. as you understand that there's a continuum and how you think about your pricing and your revenue targets and, and how quickly you can convert a customer, that factors into how you're thinking about your go-to-market motion. You're answering the question, how do I set up marketing? And, yeah. and I'm answering that with, there are some things to understand or to start thinking through about your go-to-market motion, how you think about your sales and marketing together that will inform who you hire and how you start putting together plans to do your marketing and your sales, which I'm just like labeling together as go-to-market. Let's say for a moment that we're on one or the other end of this spectrum. And are there some good rules of thumb? You know, I'm a first-time founder. I have determined that I'm mostly a product-led growth company. Now I need some people to do it. I don't know anything about marketing, right? I don't know very much about a go-to-market strategy. I know that I do a certain type of work really, really well. However, if you told me build a go-to-market strategy and build your overall marketing and sales strategy, I would basically be starting from scratch. There are a lot of other founders out there, some of whom have a ton of funding and a growing company. Should I be outsourcing this initial work? Should I be bringing someone in-house? What are the trade-offs I should be thinking about when determining the answer to that question? For your business in particular, you don't need to hire somebody full-time. You need to you need to define discrete tasks to be done in your business, like your podcast editing or whatever you've got to build your website, things like that. You don't need to hire one person to do that. You need to find a handful of people that you can use sort of like on an on-demand basis when you need them. Similarly, like the skill set for kicking off a marketing department and building a lot of the process that we're talking about from scratch is different than the execution of a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff. There are different types of marketers that you can hire, right? So, so I think there's two things Definitely. you just said is one, one, do I need to hire somebody full-time or not? And then I'm, I'm also adding on top of that, like what type of marketer should I be looking to hire, whether that's fractionally or, or full-time in my business, right? So it's what roles and then how much of them should I be bringing on board? Early on, it's really powerful to find an executive who can be an advisor or somebody fractional just to help you as the as the founder think through like the ICP, the financial stuff that I was talking about, somebody that, that you can treat like a peer and an advisor rather than somebody you have to think about as an employee and have to have all the answers for. It creates a different type of conversations and you wouldn't necessarily be able to afford an executive like that at an early stage. But for advisor shares or a percentage of their time, you can get most of the value that you would need to build those things. And as the founder, you're, there is some of that work, like some building those financial models and articulating the ICP that nobody else is better placed to do. And you're not totally ready to outsource yet. 
So that's, that's, I think a really good first option for things like this. And then when you're thinking about hiring full time, going back to product led growth, enterprise sales, that sort of thing, marketers have a DNA. Some people are great at the product led growth stuff. Those people tend to be good at a quantitative demand gen, like digital marketing sort of skill set, And they're going to have a mix of technical acumen. Like they're going to know how to work with front end frameworks. They're going to probably know how to like do some low level API connect connectivity between systems in order to pipe data around and measure those experiments and report back. They're going to have a decent amount of familiarity, like running ad campaigns and that sort of thing. It's a quantitative type skill set that had they not fallen into marketing, they might have gone into front end engineering or something similar, or like a RevOps, BizOps type of role, or they already came from that background, but it switched over to marketing because they realized that this technical operational skills that they, that they had gave them an edge as a marketer over marketers who come from more of a creative background who are good at content, you know? And then the, where I sort of fit in is I come from like a technical product marketing background. So I'm good at looking at the strat, like the strategy of positioning a technical product inside of a complex marketplace, and then building the, like building the organization around that to bring that to market. So like a lot of the roles that I've had, my job was reporting to the board, hiring, firing, meeting revenue goals, working with the sales team to make sure that they had enough leads and they had the enablement going in addition to looking at tactics like SEO and ads and events and putting all that stuff together. So early on your first marketing hire kind of needs to be a little bit of a mix of like this demand gen and the product person, product marketing, because they're going to need to be able to create content and execute it a little bit. It's always a little bit of a generalist early on. I think that is true for any role in early organization. It's hard to bring on deep subject matter experts and also expect them to execute across a bunch of different tasks and for sure. Not very much in marketing is anywhere else. There are some folks who are significantly more technical, some folks who are significantly more analytical, and some who are more relationship and branding oriented, I would say. Very few people do all of those things. Have, have you hired marketers before? Not at Max Wenneker Consulting LLC, but yes, in other organizations. And one of the things that I think is was a really good learning for me, and yeah. I, I actually have taken this with me as a general rule, and this does not apply specifically to marketing, but it was a learning for me because I am relatively unfamiliar with the area of marketing compared to some of my other of the other functions. When you're bringing on someone to a role that you have never managed before, it's kind of hard to be like, I definitely know what you're supposed to be doing. And I know the processes you're supposed to go through. And I know what good looks like and what bad looks like, right? That's yeah. very difficult. So when you're hiring for a function, particularly in a leadership capacity that you don't know much about, it's really important to not just figure out what are the right skill sets you need, which you can go to advisors for and ask folks like Austin, of course. It's also important to be filtering for this person can explain to me what needs yeah. to be happening. I think when you have someone who starts to get very technical and who isn't able to communicate, this is what needs to happen. And more importantly, why? Then you're just going to be giving a lot of trust to someone whose work you have no ability to check or verify or validate. And you're going to feel like you're in a total blind spot related to this function. That is not a good place to be in as a leader. It's probably not a great place for that person to be in because 
they are not getting any guidance and they might feel disconnected from the organization. So that was a very long way of saying it's really important as a leader to be not just filtering for a skill set, which I think is not that hard to find. I could type into chat GPT what kind of skills I would need for a, you know, go to market advisor of some sort, or, you know, I could also ask someone in my network who knows the area much better than I do. You also have to filter for this person can translate to my non go to market slash marketing slash sales brain, what needs to happen and why. I think that's a really overlooked point. And I'm wondering if you have any ways that you think about sorting for that in an interview process, because I completely agree. There was a company that I quit a few years ago because there was a mismatch on what I could explain was happening to the founder and what they knew and what their expectations of marketing were. And I finally got to a place where I realized it was not a place where I was going to be successful and I wasn't going to be actually serving the CEO in the way that they needed. And it was better for me to go and find something else. We had had a total mismatch on that in the interview process, despite really getting along in those like early conversations. So I don't know if you have a way to qualify for that, but I'm interested. <laughs> well, before I answer that, I first want to commend you on recognizing when you have a professional situation that is not the right fit for you. It might have been working okay, but it was clearly not the best use of your skill set and not the place that you were meant to be. And you decided to leave. I have seen many individuals do the opposite and say, yeah, I'm not leaving until I get fired or until I find exactly the right other thing. And what ends up happening in those situations is individuals run away from something rather than running towards something. If I were your manager, I would have been very happy that you had decided that this wasn't the right fit for you and you actually chose to do something about it rather than waiting for the right setup to come along because just the way the human brain works, as you get less and less happy, you're going to try to run away and then you're going to end up in the same situation because all you were trying to do was solve for like this one big problem, but you didn't actually solve for what do I want to be doing. Anyway, that's only a, that's a slight aside just from my management and leadership and professional development brain. Yeah. The question, sure. how do I filter for, I don't know this function at all, and I need someone to explain it to me when I hire them. Mm -hmm. One, I think you could ask some very basic questions in the early interviews and be upfront about it. There is no advantage to trying to pull the wool over someone's eyes related to your knowledge of a certain area. I was brought on by a seed stage health tech company that was looking to hire its head of marketing. I led the process. And one of the things I said to all the candidates in the first round was, I'm not the company's head of marketing. I know very little about marketing. I am very good at interview processes. And so I'm running this process, but I'm going to need you to tell me what I don't know about what is needed for success in this role, what is needed by this company or this type of company to be successful in our marketing efforts. Just being honest about that and asking for guidance, you will very quickly be able to assess this person broke down concepts into understandable bite-sized chunks, or this person went off on deep tangents that I had a really hard time keeping up with. If this is someone you're going to work with every day, obviously you're going to want to have a good rapport with them and be able to communicate well with them. That's going to be determined in the interview process. So I think the first thing is just after you've communicated that you lack knowledge about this subject matter, did they 
come into the conversation as a teacher or professor and explain it in ways that made sense? Or did they come into it from more of a, I'm preaching to you kind of approach, which is very one-sided and I'm telling you what you need to know, but I'm not gauging whether you actually internalized it. I would say that's probably like the number one thing I would do is that's the first filter. Does the person when given the opportunity literally to communicate in a way that is much simpler than probably what they need to communicate with people they normally work with? Did they take advantage of that opportunity? I think one of the things that, you're, that gets is implicit in that is that they're knowing how to ask the right questions to understand what conditions they're responding to, what conditions in the business that they would be marketing. And then also asking you questions to make along the way to make sure that as they explain something, it's landing and getting translated as opposed to then just monologuing on and not checking in with you about whether you're getting it or not. Yeah, absolutely. To be fair, I think that's a skill that's useful in any role, but certainly in a role where sure. you're hiring someone who you don't have any experience with this. You need someone who's going to stop, ask questions along the way. Otherwise, it's going to be entirely dependent on you to recognize when you're out of your depth and to call it out, which is just not a good use of your time as a leader. You should be surrounding yourself with people who can bring you information in ways that make sense to you. Quickly, so that you can make decisions or tell somebody else to make those decisions rather exactly. than keep getting more information and then learning something you didn't need to learn to do the work. Yeah, I'm bringing on head of marketing, first of all, because this is an area that I need help in right? Mm -hmm. I don't just bring on a head of marketing because that I feel like that's my best function and I just want an additional person here. I bring on a head of marketing as an early stage startup because I've identified it as a core function that needs to be successful in order for the company to be successful, right? So there's clearly a need, right? If I'm mm -hmm. going to bring on someone who's actually going to cost me more time in me trying to communicate and understand what they're trying to do, that's actually going to pull my attention away from the other things that are comparative advantages for me as a leader. For example, I am someone who comes from more of the operations background. If I were running a series A or B startup, I had a 50 to 100 employees, and I needed someone who was a leader in the area, I could probably hire someone who was a bit more junior because I could provide them a lot of guidance, right? Yep. But that's not true in marketing. So when I bring on that person in marketing, it needs to be a more senior hire and it needs to be someone who communicates really well, who's really well developed in that area. I've gone on quite a tangent on that topic, though. Great question. Let me revert it back to the other part of this topic, which is I'm a founder or a leader who knows very little about the space of marketing sales and overall go-to-market strategy. I don't know, Austin, what do I do to identify based on what my company does and where my company's at, here are the skill sets and or roles I might need to hire for. I think marketing always comes back down to, to some math. And if it's not feeling like math and the person that you're working with doesn't do a good job of making it feel like math, then you may not have the right person. Because really what you're doing with marketing is it's going to be a cost center. You're going to spend a ton of cash on it. A really easy way to think about it is how is marketing getting my sales team as many qualified or previously exposed at bats to the target market as possible, right? I'm running a process with one of my clients right now to generate a bunch of meetings and opportunities for their single salesperson. And 
we had a conversation with the, the founder about a week ago where they were talking to me and they were like, Hey, I'm actually a little bit stressed out. Cause I don't actually, I don't understand a bunch of stuff that's happening right now. And I feel like you guys are doing a lot of things, but I don't see the big picture with it. And I also feel like I'm about to spend some money and I don't feel comfortable spending this money without getting visibility into it. Right. That was a clue that one, we hadn't really built the sales dashboard that they needed to be seeing. And we hadn't run anything through that to show where the conversion rates were. This morning, I was talking with that same founder and their point to me was, okay, I've actually seen a bunch of contacts go through this email, this outbound email and another messaging campaign. And I'm seeing what the conversion rates are. Now in my head, I have a picture of, okay, we need N number of contacts to get X number of meetings, right? And now I'm thinking, okay, what's that gonna cost to get to this target revenue that we have? And they already have a decent picture about how many customers it's going to take in order to get to the revenue target for the end of the year. And now they have a picture about what the raw number of new contacts or prospects would need to be in order to get real sales conversations going on. That's always what marketing needs to be looking at, particularly the early stage. It's what are we doing to get more awareness in our target market about who our company is, what we're doing, what our value is to test that messaging and what excuses do we have to talk to people, whether that's doing a drawing, whether that's doing a webinar, whether that's a content download or an event or anything like that. Each one of those things just becomes a tactic that you spend money on as an excuse to get your sales team in front of people who you believe need and want to buy your product. If only they knew about it. Hmm. When you just think about it that way, that's it. And then when you're thinking about starting a business from a dead stop, one of the, one of the really helpful rules is you got to like, they say seven times for an advertising message to get through to somebody, which I think is like something from Olga B or whoever, probably mm -hmm. a long time ago. I think the number right now you're looking at 15 touches potentially before somebody's like in a sales conversation with you. So there's this dead stop moment of like, we're literally starting this up from scratch. How do we get 15 points of activity in a short enough time period that somebody will either say, leave me alone, unsubscribe or, okay, cool, 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 cool. I'm interested. Can we get on the phone and talk about this for 15 minutes? Just thinking about the process of that is very empowering because it gives you clarity about what activities the, the team needs to be doing in order to start those sales conversations. And then again, you look, you can look at it as a spreadsheet and go, this is working. This isn't working. What are we going to prioritize on fixing next? I'm going to break this down. What you just said into yeah. a few different parts. The first is if you're starting a company from scratch and you are trying to build up your marketing prowess or capabilities, the first thing you need is insight into the performance of your current efforts. You're saying, I need some sort of analytics or dashboard that shows me here's the conversion rate of my customers from whatever channels they come from. I just need basic insights. You're probably not going to have enough data to get basic insights from. Okay. Right. Because I haven't run any marketing campaigns yet. Right. I have a spreadsheet that I roll in with all my clients to that it goes from lead to meeting to opportunity to pipeline to deal. And I show them those conversion rates that then show us how much money it'll take based on a cost per lead to hit a revenue target for the end of the year. And then you start throwing activities at that, whether that's outbound sales 
or whatever. And this is where having a good marketer who knows how to iterate on that process and that framework will help you a lot. But as a CEO, you should be able to look at that and go, okay, I can think about this sequentially in a process and ask intelligent questions and have a collaborative conversation with my marketer and they know how to respond back. And we both know how to look at what's not working and what we're working on together to improve rather than I don't understand what they're doing and they say they're working really hard. And I know that they're doing a lot of activity, but I'm not seeing anything and they don't know how to tell me what they're doing. A bunch of stuff that you're going to do at first literally isn't going to work. You're going to be throwing stuff at the wall. And so marketers do themselves a disservice when they don't give you a framework to talk about what's working or not. A marketer's efforts not working early doesn't mean that they're a bad marketer. It means that you need to change your customer hypothesis. It means the channel was wrong. It means any number of things was, was going wrong. And the best marketers know how to iterate through those things in an intelligent way that the CEO, that the founder finds believable and cogent and simple to articulate and understand and can go back to the board and say, hey, here's what we're learning. And the board goes, yeah, that sounds about right. Because the board will have also seen the pattern matching and will go, yeah, this makes sense to me. So I need to start by saying, here's the process by which I generate interest in my company from the large, the highest point in the funnel to the lowest point in the funnel, right? And there are a series of steps that any potential customer goes through. And they will be different by company, but everyone who sells something goes from someone has never heard of this to someone is buying it. And there are a series of steps that happens through there. So you need to first define those steps. Then you need to put some, then you need to start throwing things at the wall, as you said, right? We want to start experimenting with different ways of identifying with different types of potential customers with different methods to get them into the funnel, perhaps trying different things at different steps of the funnel. And then we need to be able to measure those results and say, this was our highest performing activity in this point in the funnel. Let's expand it to cover all of that point in the funnel. And then this is the point in the funnel that we have the lowest performance. And now let's keep experimenting there. And if you're going to bring on a marketing role, that person needs to be able to, at least in the early days, needs to be able to do those things for you such that you as a CEO go from, I don't know what we're doing to generate customers to, I understand exactly the process our customers go through to become customers. And I understand exactly what is going well and what isn't. And I know what we're trying to fix the parts that aren't going well. The marketer should be able to summarize this and document what's working and what's not and the experiments that are happening and the activities that are contributing to growth or not in a way that you can go back to your board and the board will nod and go, okay, yes, this makes sense or no, this doesn't, right? That's a real test of this is if things are packaged up in a way that your board and your investors go, yeah, we think that you've got the right people on board here and they're working through this process the right way. That makes a lot of sense. What are some mistakes that you think companies tend to make in the early going as it relates to setting up a marketing function? One of the first mistakes is they don't ask their customers, they don't do persona interviews early enough to just ask customers what their day-to-day -day life is like, why they're buying, why they're not buying, what the competitive landscape is. I think one of the most challenging personality aspects of founders is they tend to be extremely large personalities. They tend to be very good at, at things. They produce more than most people do just by nature of who they are. They've got a vision. They're usually right about things. 
but they are not the same person as their customer is going to be, right? Because there are fewer founders than there are customers of companies that people found. And so there's always this translation layer about validating the hypotheses about why people buy their software or buy their products versus not. When uh, you say that founders sometimes don't do that persona work, what's happening instead? What's the red flag that I as a founder may not be understanding my target customer or my actual customer well enough? The red flag is lack of traction, full stop, right? If like founders get frustrated pretty easily, they're like, oh my God, something's not working. And the response to that is literally just to stop and go talk to five people and ask them some questions about why they buy something like this. Some very just open-ended questions, almost to just interrogate what their customer's day-to-day life is and, and understand the constraints on this. A really good example is one of my clients has a product that saves their customers a ton of cash relative to competitive alternatives. However, their customers are small businesses and are aware that there are alternatives to their current way of doing business, but there's a perceived complexity to shifting their operations to this new way of doing things. And there actually isn't with this particular company. The company actually takes care of a lot of the complexity for them. That doesn't matter though, because small business owners tend to be very suspicious of new ways of doing things, not because they're Luddites, but because they're responsible. Yeah. They're responsible for, they're going to be responsible for something breaking a small business owner. If something breaks, it's on them. Right. And so any new thing that they're doing is going to represent headaches and stress and something breaking. And so one of the things that we did in this business was we talked to a couple of their customers and sure enough, they knew that they could save money with some of the approaches that this product takes but they don't do them because they're afraid of the complexity and they're afraid of the risk to the business, right? (laughs) So the messaging from this business is, hey, savings, but also you already knew about this. We're also taking care of this, 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 and this that keep you up at night and are actually reasons that you're consciously or unconsciously choosing to not save that money. I like that a lot. I have seen this happen many times and with many of my clients as well as many of my past full-time roles there's a tendency to make the assumption that your customer, your target customer is you, has your brain, right? I couldn't tell you how many times, for instance, in the early days of Uber, we said, well, we like this product and it works for us. This is what I would want from the product. And it wasn't hubris per se. I mean, maybe it was, it was simply a lack of thoughtfulness around our customer base is guaranteed if we want to grow our customer base is definitely more than 20 somethings living in urban centers right Uh, and i think that i've seen that happen so many times and maybe a red flag to a founder is when you try to personify your customer as yourself you say well this is what i would want from the product then you've almost definitely not done the appropriate work to understand your end customer i remember my last role at uber was with jump and jump was a bike and scooter division And we were, for the first time as a company, actually managing physical hardware in a physical space, right? We suddenly had warehouses, we had Mm -hmm. bikes and scooters that we owned, we had people employed in those warehouses, like mechanics, for example, and deployers of the bikes and scooters, people who charge the batteries. I'm thinking about an internal customer right now, but it's a fantastic example nonetheless, I promise. For sure. My internal customer was the people who were deploying the bikes. 
they were the people who I ultimately needed to enable to succeed in a specific project. And we found this tremendous range of performance. And at first, me and my team, we said to ourselves, okay, if there's a range in performance, we probably need to create incentives, right? My product is going to be incentives for the deployers of the bike and scooter. And we're going to just pay them some extra bonus every month if they hit a certain target. How would it work for us? Why wouldn't it work for them? No change in behavior. We had no more buyers, quote unquote, of our product when we rolled it out than we did before. And then one day... I was in a warehouse and I just decided to ask one of the deployers about this product, that we, this product of incentives that we made. I asked, what do you think of it? And I remember he said, what are you talking about? That was a big light bulb moment of, oh, I thought I was offering you a product. Turns out you've never even heard of this thing. And yeah. if I had just spent the time on day two to figure out, oh, we hadn't communicated this incentive at all. We just built a good product, so to speak. It would have been a really good learning experience as a marketer of sorts, right? I would have figured out that my target customer actually needed to be communicated with via text and not email, for example. So I think as a founder, one of the big assumptions that is a really dangerous one that you can make is to assume that your target customer is you or responds to the same inputs that you do, responds to the same incentives that you do, reacts in the same way that you do to things, that's just false. Yeah, I could give you, if you want, I can give you a couple examples for that. And Please. Like, I actually, one of the things I think is really nice about this podcast and the thing that I get the most positive feedback about is, thank okay. you for that real world example of where that thing didn't go well. Now I know that pitfall to avoid. Okay, so this company Gremlin that I was a part of, that I led marketing at, I got about a year and a half into that company and sales were really slow. So I did a little bit of ideal customer profile work and, and put a search into Zoom Info. And this is one of the things that I'm trying to get help people with is there were 6,000 job titles that fit our ideal customer profile in the world, right? Mm. So I just by running that query, I knew that there were 6,000 potential customers who would ever use the product, right? So we realized that there was an extremely narrow addressable market. And one of the things that Gremlin has done over the last year and a half is they've taken the product and they've made some adjustments. And what I would, and simplifications is too simple, but like they have made the product more mass market, right? So that it has a wider addressable market in order to respond to the fact that they were solving this problem that only fang companies were ever really going to have. Which goes to your point about founders need to remember that they're exceptional, standout human beings. Yeah. And the, and the way that they see the world is not the way that anybody else is going to see the world. And that's one of the more frustrating things about being a founder. But it's also one of the things that when you realize that, you realize that you have to balance your vision for what the world should be with what the world actually is. And that will give you a lot of clarity about the intermediary steps to bring the world along to your vision. One of the things that I think is really amazing about working with founders is they're so upset that this thing that they have in their head doesn't already exist in the world, that they're willing to bleed for it for the next five to 10 years. And then they're also really upset that this thing doesn't exist in the world and they don't understand why everybody else doesn't see it. I know you've seen this too. Yeah, of um, course. It's very common, I think, for founders to be... Stubborn, right? Those who are attracted to being a founder are those who inherently think they think differently than others, right? And so sometimes that leads to being 
unresponsive to what the market is telling you. I want to talk about one of these directions because I think we've started in yeah. a direction, but I've seen I've seen founders often go in one of two directions, neither of which is a necessarily to an extreme or particularly good one. One is I am almost dogmatic in what I'm trying to build. And for sure. I I refuse to go into the world and understand what my customer needs. I'm just going to keep building what I'm building. And that's an and, almost guaranteed to be a point of failure. Well, sometimes they're right is the problem with that. So there's the Steve Jobs or the Henry Ford quote about, you know, sometimes you have to just make a decision. And there's always this weird tension because founders ultimately do have to make those decisions. And sometimes they do something that everybody else thinks is crazy and they're right. But sometimes it doesn't work out that way. <laughs> I think sometimes they do things that they that are crazy and are right, but for the wrong reasons. If you went back and tried to replicate this thing in another setting, it wouldn't work because they were right about it for the wrong reasons. The actual reason that something worked out was not what they were thinking. Totally. They just have, they just happen to have the right idea. And to be clear, that's fine if that happens once, but in order, in order to have a successful company, you need to get that right a bunch of times and therefore you need a, a good process. Generally, I subscribe to the belief that if you are too dogmatic and unable to internalize feedback, either internally or externally from your customers or either employees or the actual paying customers, you're probably not going to be around for very long. And I think you can see a number of examples of this in the real world of companies who went way too far down that path and had to aggressively pivot to stay viable. Certainly Uber was one of them. You know, mm -hmm. tipping was not around in the driver app for years. And this was something we as a company were dogmatically tied to. We genuinely believe that there should not be tipping in the app, right? And then 2017 came around and at some point it just became too great a burden to bear the weight of what the market was saying around we need tipping we are doing all sorts of weird workarounds to tip anyway and you are pulling money from drivers hands by not allowing it right and so finally that switch happened i can think of two really good examples in the airline industry as well which if you've listened to this podcast for more than five seconds, you know that I'm a huge aviation nerd. Spirit Airlines and Ryanair, so they are both what are called ultra-low-cost carriers. They are focused on unbundling every piece of the airfare, and literally all you're buying is access to get on the plane. If you want to bring on luggage, if you want to board early, if you want overhead space, if you even want a specific seat, you have to pay money for it. So it's all this unbundling. As you might imagine, companies that operate as ultra low cost carriers are not super focused on customer service or reliability. Spirit ran into the problem of just becoming so customer unfriendly with some of their policies in the interest of driving costs down that they were starting to lose market share. And the same happened mm -hmm. with Ryanair. They finally got to the point of admitting, oh, we can't treat our customers like total crap in the interest right. of driving costs down to the bare bone, right? There is some additional cost that's worth it because it incrementally increases revenue by more. They could have saved themselves years of trouble by recognizing that earlier and doing that pivot earlier. So all that's to say, there's a version of a founder which is way too dogmatically tied to what they originally believed and unwilling to listen to what the market is telling them. There's the extreme opposite, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, the constant pivoter. What you said earlier, something that made me think of this was when you get information from the marketplace that says, oh, I learned something about my customer today 
that's helping inform who I should be targeting, how I should be targeting them, or what I'm actually building, you pivot, right? You change one of those things. What is your thought on regularly pivoting and how much is too much pivoting in the face of information from the marketplace? It's funny. I have run into that recently with a company that I stepped in to sort of take over the marketing department in an interim. It went back to an executive team that didn't necessarily understand marketing as a discipline. And it's difficult to manage something that you don't understand. And there were other pressing priorities to a certain degree. There's always the inherent impatience and sense of urgency that's very healthy with founders. And that's the only reason they get anything done. And because it's this Herculean effort to force of will a company off of the ground. But that sort of thing, when a marketing process takes time to start getting moving, can get in their way. You have to hire the right people and trust them and empower them. And that's one of the things that I think is challenging about marketers is that they don't necessarily always know how to communicate well to earn respect inside the organization. And so they don't earn a seat at the table. Some of that's just getting lucky with finding senior marketing people who teach you how to communicate about what you're doing in a way that the rest of the organization resonates with. But I think from the perspective of the CEO, you have to make sure that you like the people that you're hiring and you respect them and that you're listening to them because that doesn't always happen. And then if you're frustrated with what's happening in your department, but you haven't given them, you haven't created the conditions for them to be successful and you haven't hired the right leader to do that work, then it's very easy for the marketing department to become a scapegoat for the rest of the organization. And this is where a lot of executive teams can sort of get sided with each other, where sales and marketing, if they don't have a shared set of responsibilities with clearly defined expectations about handoff points, right? It makes it easy for that relationship to become very antagonistic because the head of sales will always blame marketing for the leads, right? And then, and sales usually has more leverage in the organization than marketing does. You know, and so that that puts marketing behind the eight ball, whether they're doing doing something wrong or not. I think just asking the question and wanting to hear the answer, whether you like it or not, as a CEO is asking people, how long should this take before we start seeing results? And then somebody will give you an answer. And then the immediate thing that a CEO is always going to do in my experience is it needs to happen this quickly. Right. It needs and to happen next kind of percent faster. Right. Because you always have to do that because you always have to light a little bit of a fire under somebody to get them to do something that that they didn't think was possible. That's the most healthy thing in the world. And you should always do that. But there are some things that just take time to bake. And marketing is one of them. Like something you were saying earlier. If I ask you a question, do you give me an answer back that that is reasonable and easy for me to understand? One of the things you said earlier, which I think is really the important point here is There is such thing as over pivoting because you could say, I'm going to try out this new tactic. I'm going to try out this change to what I'm offering. I'm going to try out this change to how I'm offering it, right? What channels I'm advertising on, for example, Mm -hmm. Uh, that takes time, right? I'm working with a company who's helping me build my online presence. If I say after seven days that I haven't grown in engagement from my followers, well, they're going to say it takes a little more time than that. And so if I pivot at that point, if I take the early signal of nothing has changed yet as this is not going anywhere, then I'm probably over pivoting. I think that the key here is you need to give marketing efforts time to bear fruit 
what we read about often is the almost sanitized version of a company's early history, which was, we made this For one sure. change and then suddenly we blew up, right? But I think that belies all of the detail around, we had to wait, we had to make all these m small adjustments, we had to grind it out with cold calling or whatever. It belies all of those little details that don't make as nice a story, certainly, but are much more the truth. And so I think there definitely is such thing as over pivoting. And particularly when it comes to marketing efforts, I think marketing is one of those things. Building a brand is one of those things that you know, I'm not a very patient person. I'm very much like input, then output, right? That's my operational brain thinking about how we all are. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, that's human nature. Uh, marketing is one of those things, like you said, it's one of those old adages takes seven to 10 times to hear something before you actually consider buying it or you have it in mind like that that's really important advice to live by in the marketing world you can't just say well this didn't work after five days or a week or two i'm gonna try a new target customer or a new product there's a couple of points on the founders are obsessed with their own idea they're like if everybody would just see what i saw right yeah that's a red line so marketing so why isn't it just working so a couple of anti-patterns that i've had to deal with with this is that you start too many vertical motions at once right hmm. where you're going after dentist offices and then you also want to go after chiropractic offices you know or you're going after medical offices but then you're going to go after like small warehouse businesses because your software can do the same thing those are completely different customers and they may be able to get use out of your software but they have different buying patterns there's different use cases there's different messaging your homepage is going to look different they're going to like have different approvers from a purchase perspective when you're setting up a marketing and sales process you want to get something repeatable before you get impatient and switch over to another thing because you're not gonna hire twice as many marketing and salespeople to spin up this other vertical simultaneously while you're still trying to wait for this other one to work. What's gonna happen is you're gonna randomize your team and everything's gonna slow down and that'll come from a place of impatience saying this isn't working quick enough. What if we just did this other thing over here? But it will literally randomize your entire business and slow everything down. I've seen that cost companies 12 months of runway just because they didn't have the discipline to finish an experiment. Yeah, very clear thread between these things, right? Which is we are spreading yeah. our efforts, our marketing efforts, our product development efforts, our customer targeting efforts way too thin, right? Doing two things at 50% is not the same thing as doing one thing at 100%. So if I'm targeting two different customers, right? Dentist offices and chiropractic offices was your example in the first story, right? right? There is some distraction or lost attention or energy or resource that comes from context switching. So if I divide my efforts in two, I actually don't get 50% of each of those efforts. I get more like 40 or 45, right? I don't get to go nearly as deep in either of those efforts it's harder to pivot because I have less time focusing on each of those efforts. It is significantly less likely that I will happen upon the right approach. It will take me significantly longer to get familiar, you know, ramp up the learning curve of this is what this type of customer really needs. This is what they need to hear. This is how I need to communicate with them. All of your organization, particularly in the marketing side and the product development side being divided like that means you are going to, one, be significantly less significantly slower to achieve whatever the outcome was you wanted in terms of growth or customer targeting Two, it may actually mean that you don't get there at all. I think it is a yep. much better approach to say, over the next 12 months, we're going to spend 
time trying to target each of these customers. I think it is far better to say, let's spend four months focused on one of them and really getting very good at it and seeing how it goes before pivoting to the next try of a different customer target, then saying, let's spend all 12 months, a third of our time on each of them at once. Because what will happen is you'll get two months in and you'll say, wow, I just learned a ton. I either think I should really be even doubling down more on these efforts with this one targeted customer. I should be shifting how I focus on this targeted customer or wow, we are really getting nowhere. Let's move sooner to the next target customer with all the learnings we had around what worked and what didn't. Now you're suddenly investing your resources so much more efficiently and yep. you are creating a much more likely scenario that you identify your appropriate target customer sometime during that year than if you not even half ass, if you one third asset with all three of these target customers for the entire year. Yep. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I've, you've seen this before. Yes. Many times. I mean, it, this is again, <laughs> human nature is particularly when it comes to founders, uh, every, almost every founder I've ever worked with has said, what more can we do? Can we do this faster? Can we try additional things? Right. And I totally get where that's coming from. They are yep. so deeply devoted to their cause. They're so deeply devoted to their product and their business. They have to realize is that that's just not how organizations work when it's more than just you, you need to figure out how to focus your efforts. Doing one thing well is much better than doing two or three things poorly. It can take three, sometimes four weeks to get a website up for an experiment on a customer vertical. And then you're going to throw up activity after that. So you're going to start seeing feedback in like six to eight weeks. And then you're going to iterate on that and you're going to have another couple of months of iteration on that, but it just takes time. It's one of the reasons that I structure my business the way that I do is I want to be a safe place for founders to work through a lot of that ideation experimentation process, but without them having to hire somebody full time. And I'm doing this kind of selfishly because I ended up in a couple of startups where I wished that somebody had beaten off some of the rough edges of these companies before I had gotten there because it would have made my life a lot easier. That's really valuable. If I'm being successful, if the founders that I'm working with know how to manage their, their future marketing teams better and they get to revenue faster than they might have otherwise. Yep. Yeah. Because you're helping them get rid of the superfluous stuff that they don't need to be focused on. It's, it's Good. in marketing, it's almost like the, the founder personality and how you need to approach the external marketplace really need, are quite at odds. And mm -hmm. I think that's maybe one of the more important functions that a senior marketing person helps with is, is we need to be focused, very targeted, really let things play out. And I think a founder is often, particularly in the early stage of a company, trying to do almost the opposite of that in every way. I think we are basically out of time. So I'm going to, I'm going to call it here and give a big thanks to Austin. A couple of things before we go. First, if folks are interested in learning more about your work, is there a website they can go to? Yeah. My business is called market model consulting and you can go to go marketmodel.com. You know, and yeah, there's a little bit on there. There's some, some of the folks that I've worked with and then we can, you know, my email address is on there. If you want to reach out and chat with me. Cool. Second for our San Diego based listeners favorite coffee shop you've been to this month that everyone needs to try? Ooh. 
<laughs> That's a great question for me. My favorite coffee shop in San Diego is is Zumbar Coffee. There's one in Sorrento Valley, and there's one that just got renamed. They got acquired by the barista. It's called Rose Hill now in Cardiff. I'll drive 25 minutes up to Cardiff with the novel that I'm reading, and I'll just sit there and like read my novel and drink espresso. Sounds lovely in Sunday morning. Cardiff's a nice town, certainly. Thanks so much for for joining, Austin. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Max. This was a lot of fun.